The next section heading is Subjective Arguments. But it is not solely by objective arguments that the non-believer may be disposed to faith. There are also those that are subjective, and for this purpose the modernist apologists return to the doctrine of immanence. They endeavour, in fact, to persuade their non-believer that down in the very depths of his nature and his life lie hidden the need and the desire for some religion, and this not a religion of any kind, but a specific religion known as Catholicism, which, they say, is absolutely postulated by the perfect development of life. And here again we have grave reason to complain that there are Catholics who, while rejecting imminence as a doctrine, employ it as a method of apologetics, and who do this so imprudently that they seem to admit not merely a capacity and a suitability for the supernatural, such as has at all times been emphasized within due limits by Catholic apologists, but that there is in human nature a true and rigorous need for the supernatural order. Truth to tell, it is only the moderate modernists who make this appeal to an exigency for the Catholic religion. As for the others, who might be called integralists, they would show to the non-believer, as hidden in his being, the very germ which Christ himself had in his consciousness and which he transmitted to mankind. Such, venerable brethren, is a summary description of the apologetic method of the modernists in perfect harmony with their doctrines, methods and doctrines replete with errors, made not for edification but for destruction, not for the making of Catholics but for the seduction of those who are Catholics into heresy and tending to the utter subversion of all religion. The next section heading is The Modernist as a Reformer. It remains for us now to say a few words about the modernist as a reformer. From all that has preceded, it is abundantly clear how great and how eager is the passion of such men for innovation. In all Catholicism, there's absolutely nothing on which it does not fasten. They wish philosophy to be reformed, especially in the ecclesiastical seminaries. They wish the scholastic philosophy to be relegated to the history of philosophy and to be classed among obsolete systems, and the young men to be taught modern philosophy, which alone is true and suited to the times in which we live. They desire the reform of theology. Rational theology is to have modern philosophy as foundation, and positive theology is to be founded on the history of dogma. As for history, it must be written and taught only according to their methods and modern principles. Dogmas and their evolution, they affirm, are to be harmonized with science and history. In the Catechism, no dogmas are to be asserted except those that have been reformed and are within the capacity of the people. Regarding worship, they say, the number of external devotions is to be reduced and steps must be taken to prevent their further increase, though indeed some of the admirers of symbolism are disposed to be more indulgent on this head. They cry out that ecclesiastical government requires to be reformed in all its branches, but especially in its disciplinary and dogmatic departments. They insist that both outwardly and inwardly 
must be brought into harmony with a modern conscience, which now wholly tends towards democracy. A share in ecclesiastical government should therefore be given to the lower ranks of the clergy and even to the laity, and authority which is too much concentrated should be decentralized. The Roman congregations, and especially the index and the holy office, must be likewise modified. The ecclesiastical authority must alter its line of conduct in the social and political world. While keeping outside political organizations, it must adapt itself to them in order to penetrate them with its spirit. With regard to morals, they adopt the principle of the Americanists that the active virtues are more important than the passive and are to be more encouraged in practice. They ask that the clergy should return to their primitive humility and poverty and that in their ideas and action they should admit the principles of modernism. And there are some who, gladly listening to the teaching of their Protestant masters, would desire the suppression of the celibacy of the clergy. What is there left in the church which is not to be reformed by them and according to their principles? Section heading, Modernism, the Synthesis of All Heresies. It may perhaps seem to some venerable brethren that we have dwelt at too great length on this exposition of the doctrines of the modernists. But it was necessary that we should do so, both in order to meet their customary charge that we do not understand their ideas, and to show that their system does not consist in scattered and uncollected theories, but, as it were, in a closely connected whole, so that it is not possible to admit one without admitting all. For this reason, too, we have had to give to this exposition a somewhat didactic form, and not to shrink from employing certain unwonted terms which the modernists have brought into use. And now, with our eyes fixed upon the whole system, no one will be surprised that we should define it to be the synthesis of all heresies. Undoubtedly, were anyone to attempt the task of collecting together all the errors that have been broached against the faith and to concentrate into one the sap and substance of them all, he could not succeed in doing so better than the modernists have done. Nay, they have gone farther than this, for as we have already intimated, their system means the destruction not of the Catholic religion alone, but of all religion. Hence the rationalists are not wanting in their applause, and the most frank and sincere among them congratulate themselves in having found in the modernists the most valuable of all allies. Let us turn for a moment, venerable brethren, to that most disastrous doctrine of agnosticism. By it, every avenue to God on the side of the intellect is barred to man while a better way is supposed to be opened from the side of a certain sense of the soul and action. But who does not see how mistaken is such a contention? For the sense of the soul is the response to the action of the thing which the intellect or the outward senses set before it. Take away the intelligence and man, already inclined to follow the senses, becomes their slave doubly mistaken from another point of view, for all these fantasies of the religious sense will never be able to destroy common sense, 
and common sense tells us that emotion and everything that leads the heart captive proves a hindrance instead of a help to the discovery of truth. We speak of truth in itself, for that other purely subjective truth, the fruit of the internal sense and action, if it serves its purpose for the play of words, is of no benefit to the man who wants above all things to know whether outside himself there is a God into whose hands he is one day to fall. True, the modernists call an experience to eke out their system. But what does this experience add to that sense of the soul? Absolutely nothing, beyond a certain intensity and a proportionate deepening of the conviction of the reality of the object. But these two will never make the sense of the soul into anything but sense, nor will they alter its nature, which is liable to deception when the intelligence is not there to guide it. On the contrary, they but confirm and strengthen this nature, for the more intense the sense is, the more it is really sense. And as we are here dealing with a religious sense and the experience involved in it, it is known to you, venerable brethren, how necessary in such a matter is prudence and the learning by which prudence is guided. You know it from your own dealings with souls, and especially with souls in whom sentiment predominates. You know it also from your reading of works of ascetical theology, works for which the modernists have but little esteem, but which testify to a science and a solidity far greater than theirs, and to a refinement and subtlety of observation far beyond any which the modernists take credit to themselves for possessing. It seems to us nothing short of madness, or the least can sum it to merity, to accept for true and without investigation these incomplete experiences which are the vaunt of the modernist. Let us for a moment put the question, if experiences have so much force and value in their estimation, why do they not attach equal weight to the experience that so many thousands of Catholics have that the modernists are on the wrong path? Is it that the Catholic experiences are the only ones which are false and deceptive? The vast majority of mankind holds, and always will hold firmly, that sense and experience alone, when not enlightened and guided by reason, cannot reach to the knowledge of God. What then remains but atheism and the absence of all religion? Certainly it's not the doctrine of symbolism that will save us from this. For if all the intellectual elements, as they call them, of religion are nothing more than mere symbols of God, will not the very name of God or of divine personality be also a symbol? And if this be admitted, the personality of God will become a matter of doubt, and the gate will be open to pantheism. And to pantheism pure and simple, that other doctrine of the divine immanence leads directly. For this is the question which we ask, does or does not this immanence leave God distinct from man? If it does, in what does it differ from the Catholic doctrine, and why does it reject the doctrine of external revelation? If it does not, it is pantheism. Now the doctrine of immanence in the modernist acceptation holds and professes that every phenomenon of a conscience 
proceed from man as man. The rigorous conclusion from this is the identity of man with God, which means pantheism. The distinction which modernists make between science and faith leads to the same conclusion. The object of science, they say, is the reality of the knowable. The object of faith, on the contrary, is the reality of the unknowable. Now what makes the unknowable unknowable is the fact that there is no proportion between his object and the intellect, a defective proportion which nothing whatever, even in the doctrine of the modernist, can suppress. Hence the unknowable remains and will eternally remain unknowable to the believer as well as to the philosopher. Therefore, if any religion at all is possible, it can only be the religion of an unknowable reality. And why this religion might not be that soul of the universe, of which certain rationalists speak, is something which certainly does not seem to us apparent. These reasons suffice to show superabundantly by how many roads modernism leads to atheism and to the annihilation of all religion. The era of Protestantism made the first step on this path, that of modernism makes the second, atheism makes the next. So far in this encyclical, St. Pius X has been dealing with an analysis of modernist teaching. That's part one. Now we come to part two, the cause of modernism. To penetrate still deeper into the meaning of modernism and to find a suitable remedy for so deep a sore, it behoves us, venerable brethren, to investigate the causes which have engendered it and which foster its growth. That the proximate and immediate cause consists in an error of the mind cannot be open to doubt. We recognize that the remote causes may be reduced to two, curiosity and pride. Curiosity by itself, if not prudently regulated, suffices to account for all errors. Such is the opinion of our predecessor, Gregory XVI, who wrote, A lamentable spectacle is that presented by the aberrations of human reason when it yields to the spirit of novelty, when, against the warnings of the apostle, it seeks to know beyond what it is meant to know, and when relying too much on itself, it thinks it can find the truth outside the Catholic Church, wherein truth is to be found without the slightest shadow of error. But it is pride which exercises an incomparably greater sway over the soul to blind it and lead it into error, and pride sits in modernism as in its own house, finding sustenance everywhere in its doctrines and lurking in its every aspect. It is pride which fills modernists with that self-assurance by which they consider themselves and pose as the rule for all. It is pride which puffs them up with that vain glory which allows them to regard themselves as the sole possessors of knowledge and makes them say, elated and inflated with presumption, we are not as the rest of men, and which, lest they should seem as other men, leads them to embrace and to devise novelties even of the most absurd kind. It is pride which rouses in them the spirit of disobedience 
and causes them to demand a compromise between authority and liberty. It is owing to their pride that they seek to be reformers of others while they forget to reform themselves and that they are found to be utterly wanting in respect for authority, even for the supreme authority. Truly, there is no road which leads so directly and so quickly to modernism as pride. When a Catholic layman or a priest forgets the precept of the Christian life, which obliges us to renounce ourselves if we would follow Christ, and neglects to tear pride from his heart, then it is he who most of all is a fully ripe subject for the errors of modernism. For this reason, venerable brethren, it would be our first duty to resist such victims of pride, to employ them only in the lowest and obscurest offices. The higher they try to rise, the lower let them be placed, so that the lowliness of their position may limit their power of causing damage. Examine most carefully your young clerics by yourselves and by the directors of your seminaries, and when you find the spirit of pride amongst them, reject them without compunction from the priesthood. Would to God that this had always been done with the vigilance and constancy which were required. If we pass on from the moral to the intellectual causes of modernism, the first and the chief which presents itself is ignorance. Yes, these very modernists who seek to be esteemed as doctors of the church, who speak so loftily of modern philosophy and show such contempt for scholasticism, have embraced the one with all its false glamour precisely because the ignorance of the other has left them without the means of being able to recognise confusion of thought and to refute sophistry. Their whole system, containing as it does errors so many and so great, has been born of the union between faith and false philosophy. Next section heading, Methods of Propagandism. Would that they had but displayed less zeal and energy in propagating it. But such is their activity and their unwearing labour on behalf of their cause, that one cannot but be pained to see them waste such energy in endeavouring to ruin the Church when they might have been of such service to her had their efforts been better directed. Their artifices to delude men's minds are of two kinds. The first, to remove obstacles from their path. The second, to devise and apply actively and patiently every resource that can serve their purpose. They recognize that the three chief difficulties which stand in their way are the scholastic method of philosophy, the authority and tradition of the fathers, and the magisterium of the church, and on these they wage unrelenting war. Against scholastic philosophy and theology, they use the weapons of ridicule and contempt. Whether it is ignorance or fear or both that inspires this conduct in them, certain it is that the passion for novelty is always united in them with hatred of scholasticism, and there's no surer sign that a man is tending to modernism than when he begins to show his dislike for the scholastic method. Let the modernists and their admirers remember the proposition condemned by Pius IX. Quote, 
the method and the principles which have served the ancient doctors of scholasticism when treating of theology no longer correspond with the exigencies of our time or the progress of science. Unquote. They exercise all their ingenuity in an effort to weaken the force and falsify the character of tradition so as to rob it of all its weight and authority. But for Catholics, nothing will remove the authority of the Second Council of Nicaea, where it condemns those, quote, who dare, after the impious fashion of heretics, to deride the ecclesiastical traditions, to invent novelties of some kind, or endeavour by malice or craft to overthrow any one of the legitimate traditions of the Catholic Church, unquote nor of the declaration of the Fourth Council of Constantinople, quote, We therefore profess to preserve and guard the rules bequeathed to the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church by the Holy and Most Illustrious Apostles, by the Orthodox Councils, both general and local, by every one of those divine interpreters, the Fathers and Doctors of the Church, unquote. Wherefore, the Roman Pontiffs, Pius IV, and Pius IX ordered the insertion in the profession of faith of the following declaration I most firmly admit and embrace the apostolic and ecclesiastical traditions and other observances and constitutions of the Church. The modernists pass judgment on the Holy Fathers of the Church even as they do upon tradition. With consummate temerity, they assure the public that the Fathers, while personally most worthy of all veneration, were entirely ignorant of history and criticism, which, for which they are only excusable on account of the time in which they lived. Finally, the modernists try in every way to diminish and weaken the authority of the ecclesiastical magisterium itself by sacrilegiously falsifying its origin, character and rights, and by freely repeating the calumnies of his adversaries. To the entire band of modernists may be applied those words which our predecessor sorrowfully wrote, to bring contempt and odium on the mystic spouse of Christ, who is the true light, the children of darkness have been wont to cast in her face before the world a, stu a stupid calumny, and perverting the meaning and force of things and words, to depict her as the friend of darkness and ignorance and the enemy of light, science and progress. This being so, venerable brethren, there is little reason to wonder that the modernists vent all their bitterness and hatred on Catholics who zealously fight the battles of the Church. There is no species of insult which they do not heap upon them, but their usual course is to charge them with ignorance or obstinacy. When an adversary rises up against them with an erudition and force that render him redoubtable, they seek to make a conspiracy of silence around him to nullify the effects of his attack. This policy towards Catholics is the more invidious in that they belord with admiration which knows no bounds the writers who range themselves on their side hailing their works, exuding novelty in every page, with a chorus of applause. For them, the scholarship of a writer is in direct proportion 
to the recklessness of his attacks on antiquity and of his efforts to undermine tradition and the ecclesiastical magisterium. When one of their number falls under the condemnations of the church, the rest of them, to the disgust of good Catholics, gather round him, loudly and publicly applaud him, and hold him up in veneration as almost a martyr for truth. The young, excited and confused by all this clamor of praise and abuse, some of them afraid of being branded as ignorant, others ambitious to rank among the learned, and both classes goaded internally by curiosity and pride, not infrequently surrender and give themselves up to modernism. And here we have already some of the artifices employed by modernists to exploit their wares. What efforts do they not make to win new recruits? They seize upon professorships in seminaries and universities and gradually make of them chairs of pestilence. In sermons from the pulpit, they disseminate their doctrines, although possibly in utterances which are veiled. In congresses, they express their teachings more openly. In their social gatherings, they introduce them and commend them to others. Under their own names and under pseudonyms, they publish numbers of books, newspapers, reviews, and sometimes one and the same writer adopts a variety of pseudonyms to trap the incautious reader into believing in a multitude of modernist writers. In short, with feverish activity, they leave nothing untried in act, speech and writing. And with what result? We have to deplore the spectacle of many young men, once full of promise and capable of rendering great services to the Church, now gone astray. It is also subject of grief to us that many others who, while they certainly do not go so far as the former, have yet been so infected by breathing a poisoned atmosphere as to think, speak and write with a degree of laxity which ill becomes a Catholic. They are to be found among the laity and in the ranks of the clergy, and they are not wanting, even in the last place where one might expect to meet them, in religious communities. If they treat of biblical questions, it's upon modernist principles. If they write history, they carefully and with ill-concealed satisfaction drag into the light on the plea of telling the whole truth everything that appears to cast a stain upon the Church. Under the sway of certain a priori conceptions, they destroy as far as they can the pious traditions of the people and bring into disrespect certain relics highly venerable from their antiquity. They are possessed by the empty desire of having their names upon the lips of the public, and they know they would never succeed in this were they to say only what has always been said by all men. Meanwhile, it may be that they persuaded themselves that in all this they are really serving God and the Church. In reality, they only offend both, less perhaps by their works in themselves than by the spirit in which they write and by the encouragement they thus give to the aims of the modernists. The third and last section in this encyclical letter, Pashendi, it's entitled Remedies. Against this host of grave errors and its secret and open advance, 
Our predecessor, Leo XIII of happy memory, worked strenuously both in his words and his acts, especially as regards the study of the Bible. But as we have seen, the modernists are not easily deterred by such weapons. With an affectation of great submission and respect, they proceeded to twist the words of the pontiff to their own sense, while they described his actions as directed against others than themselves. Thus, the evil has gone on increasing from day to day. We, therefore, venerable brethren, have decided to suffer no longer delay and to adopt measures which are more efficacious. We exhort and conjure you to see to it that in this most grave matter no one shall be in a position to say that you have been in the slightest degree wanting in vigilance, zeal or firmness. And what we ask of you and expect of you, we ask and expect also of all other pastors of souls, of all educators and professors of clerics, and in a very special way of the superiors of religious communities. Section heading number one. The study of scholastic philosophy. In the first place, with regard to studies, we will and strictly ordain the scholastic philosophy be made the basis of the sacred sciences. It goes without saying that, to quote Leo XIII, if anything is met with among the scholastic doctors which may be regarded as something investigated with an excess of subtlety or taught without sufficient consideration, anything which is not in keeping with the certain results of later times, anything in short which is altogether destitute of probability, we have no desire whatever to propose it for the imitation of present generations. Unquote. And let it be clearly understood above all things that when we prescribe scholastic philosophy, we understand chiefly that which the angelic doctor has bequeathed to us. And we therefore declare that all the ordinances of our predecessor on this subject continue fully in force, and as far as may be necessary, we do decree anew and confirm an order. They shall be strictly observed by all. When he says angelic doctor, he means, of course, St. Thomas Aquinas. In seminaries where they have been neglected, it will be for the bishops to exact and require their observance in the future. And let this apply also to the superiors of religious orders. Further, we admonish professors to bear well in mind that they cannot set aside St. Thomas, especially in metaphysical questions, without grave disadvantage. On this philosophical foundation, the theological edifice is to be carefully raised. Propose the study of theology, venerable brethren, by all means in your power, so that your clerics, on leaving the seminaries, may carry with them a deep admiration and love of it, and always find in it a source of delight. For, as Leo XIII said, in the vast and varied abundance of studies opening before the mind desirous of truth, it is known to everyone that theology occupies such a commanding place that according to an ancient adage of the wise, it is the duty of the other arts and sciences to serve it and to wait upon it after the manner of handmaidens. Unquote. We will add that we deem worthy of praise those who, with full respect for tradition, the fathers and the ecclesiastical magisterium, 
endeavour with well-balanced judgment and guided by Catholic principles, which is not always the case, to illustrate positive theology by throwing upon it the light of true history. It is certainly necessary that positive theology should be held in greater appreciation than it has been in the past. But this must be done without detriment to scholastic theology. And those are to be disapproved as modernists who exalt positive theology in such a way as to seem to despise the scholastic. With regard to secular studies, let it suffice to recall here what our predecessor has admirably said, quote, Apply yourselves energetically to the study of natural sciences, in which department the things that have been so brilliantly discovered and so usefully applied to the admiration of the present age will be the object of praise and commendation to those who come after us, unquote. But this is to be done without interfering with sacred studies, as our same predecessor prescribed in these most weighty words, quote, If you carefully search for the cause of these errors, you will find that it lies in the fact that in these days, when the natural sciences absorb so much study, the more severe and lofty studies have been proportionately neglected. Some of them have almost passed into oblivion. Some of them are pursued in a half-hearted or superficial way, and, sad to say, now that the splendour of the former state is dimmed, they have been disfigured by perverse doctrines and monstrous errors. Unquote. We ordain, therefore, that the study of natural sciences in the seminaries be carried out according to the law. Section heading number two, Practical Applications. All these prescriptions, both our own and those of our predecessor, are to be kept in view whenever there is question of choosing directors and professors for seminaries and Catholic universities. Anyone who in any way is found to be tainted with modernism is to be excluded without compunction from these offices, whether of government or of teaching, and those who already occupy them are to be removed. The same policy is to be adopted towards those who openly or secretly lend countenance to modernism, either by extolling the modernists and excusing their culpable conduct, or by carping at scholasticism and the fathers and the magisterium of the church, or by refusing obedience to ecclesiastical authority in any of its depositories, and towards those who show a love of novelty in history, archaeology, biblical exegesis. And finally, towards those who neglect the sacred sciences or appear to prefer to them the secular. In all this question of studies, venerable brethren, you cannot be too watchful or too constant, but most of all in the choice of professors, for as a rule the students are modelled after the pattern of their masters. Strong in the consciousness of your duty, always act in this matter with prudence and with vigour. Equal diligence and severity are to be used in examining and selecting candidates for holy orders. Far, far from the clergy be the love of novelty. God hateth the proud and the obstinate mind. For the future, the doctorate of theology and canon law must never be conferred on anyone who has not first of all made the regular course of scholastic philosophy. If conferred, 
it shall be held as null and void. The rules laid down in 1896 by the Sacred Congregation of Bishops and Regulars for the Clerics, both secular and regular, of Italy, concerning the frequenting of the universities, we now decree to be extended to all nations. Clerics and priests inscribed in a Catholic institute or university must not in the future follow in civil universities those courses for which are their chairs in the Catholic institutes to which they belong. If this has been permitted anywhere in the past, we ordain that it be not allowed for the future. Let the bishops who form the governing board of such Catholic institutes or universities watch with all care that these our commands are constantly observed. Section heading number three, Episcopal Vigilance Over Publications. It is also the duty of the bishops to prevent writings of modernists or whatever savours of modernism or promotes it from being read when they have been published and to hinder their publication when they have not. No books or papers or periodicals whatever of this kind are to be permitted to seminarists or university students. The injury to them would not be less than that which is caused by immoral reading. Nay, it would be greater for such writings poison Christian life at its very found. The same decision is to be taken concerning the writings of some Catholics who, though not evilly disposed themselves, are ill-instructed in theological studies and imbued with modern philosophy and strive to make this harmonize with the faith and, as they say, to turn it to the profit of the faith. The name and reputation of these authors cause them to be read without suspicion and they are therefore all the more dangerous in gradually preparing the way for modernism. To add some more general directions, venerable brethren, in a matter of such moment, we order you, we order that you do everything in your power to drive out of your diocese, even by solemn interdict, any pernicious books that may be in circulation there. The Holy See neglects no means to remove writings of this kind, but their number has now grown to such an extent that it is hardly possible to subject them all to censure. Hence it happens sometimes that the remedy arrives too late, for the disease has taken root during the delay. We will, therefore, that the bishops, putting aside all fear and the prudence of the flesh, despising the clamour of evil men, shall, gently, by all means, but firmly, do each his own part in this work, remembering the injunctions of Leo XIII in the Apostolic Constitution of Fitiorum, quote, Let the ordinaries, acting in this also as delegates of the Apostolic See, exert themselves to prescribe and to put out of reach of the faithful injurious books or other writings printed or circulated in their dioceses, unquote. In this passage, the bishops, it is true, receive an authorization, but they have also a charge laid upon them. Let no bishop think that he fulfills this duty by denouncing to us one or two books, while a great many others of the same kind are being published and circulated. Nor are you to be deterred by the fact that a book has obtained elsewhere the permission which is commonly called the imprimatur both because this may be merely simulated 
and because it may have been granted through carelessness or too much indulgence or excessive trust placed in the author, which last has perhaps sometimes happened in the religious orders. Besides, just as with the same food does not agree with everyone, it may happen that a book, harmless in one place, may, on account of the different circumstances, be hurtful in another. Should a bishop, therefore, after having taken the advice of prudent persons, deem it right to condemn any of such books in his diocese, we give him ample faculty for the purpose, and we lay upon him the obligation of doing so. Let all this be done in a fitting manner, and in certain cases it will suffice to restrict the prohibition to the clergy. But in all cases it will be obligatory on Catholic booksellers not to put on sale books condemned by the bishop. And while we are treating of this subject, we wish the bishops to see to it that booksellers do not, through desire for gain, engage in evil trade. It is certain that in the catalogues of some of them, the books of the modernists are not infrequently announced with no small praise. If they refuse obedience, let the bishops, after due admonition, have no hesitation in depriving them of the title of Catholic booksellers. This applies, and with still more reason, to those who have the title of Episcopal booksellers. If they have that of Pontifical booksellers, let them be denounced to the Apostolic See. Finally, we remind all of Article 26 of the above-mentioned Constitution of Figiorum. Quote, all those who have obtained an apostolic faculty to read and keep forbidden books are not thereby authorized to read and keep books and periodicals forbidden by the local ordinaries unless the apostolic faculty expressly concedes permission to read and keep books condemned by any one whomsoever. Unquote. Section heading, Censorship. It is not enough to hinder the reading and the sale of bad books. It is also necessary to prevent them from being published. Hence, let the bishops use the utmost strictness in granting permission to print. Under the rules of the Constitution Officiorum, many publications require the authorization of the ordinary, and in certain dioceses, since the bishop cannot personally make himself acquainted with them all, it has been the custom to have a suitable number of official censors for the examination of writings. We have the highest esteem for this institution of censors, and we not only exhort, but we order that it be extended to all dioceses. In all Episcopal curias, therefore, let censors be appointed for the revision of works intended for publication, and let the censors be chosen from both ranks of the clergy, secular and regular, men whose age, knowledge and prudence will enable them to follow the safe and golden mean in their judgments. It shall be their office to examine everything which requires permission for publication according to Articles 41 and 42 of the above-mentioned Constitution. The censor shall give his verdict in writing. If it be favourable, the bishop will give the permission for publication by the word imprimatur, which must be preceded by the nihil obstat and the name of the censor. In the Roman Curia, 
official censors shall be appointed in the same way as elsewhere, and the duty of nominating them shall appertain to the master of the sacred palace after they have been proposed to the cardinal vicar and have been approved and accepted by the sovereign pontiff. It will also be the office of the master of the sacred palace to select the censor for each writing. Permission for publication will be granted by him as well as by the cardinal vicar or his vice-regent, and this permission, as above prescribed, must be preceded by the nihil obstat and the name of the censor. Only on very rare and exceptional occasions, and on the prudent decision of the bishop, shall it be possible to omit mention of the censor. The name of the censor shall never be made known to the authors until he shall have given a favourable decision, so that he may not have to suffer inconvenience either while he is engaged in the examination of a writing or in case he should withhold his approval. Censors shall never be chosen from the religious orders until the opinion of the provincial, or in Rome of the general, has been privately obtained, and the provincial or the general must give a conscientious account of the character, knowledge, and orthodoxy of the candidate. We admonish religious superiors of their most solemn duty never to allow anything to be published by any of their subjects without permission from themselves and from the ordinary. Finally, we affirm and declare that the title of censor with which a person may be honoured has no value whatever and can never be adduced to give credit to the private opinions of him who holds it. Section heading, Priests as Editors. Having said this much in general, we now ordain in particular a more careful observance of Article 42 of the above-mentioned Constitution Officiorum, according to which, quote, it is forbidden to secular priests without the previous consent of the ordinary to undertake the editorship of papers or periodicals, unquote. This permission shall be withdrawn from any priest who makes a wrong use of it after having received an admonition thereupon. With regard to priests who are correspondents or collaborators of periodicals, as it happens not infrequently that they contribute matter infected with modernism to their papers or periodicals, let the bishop see to it that they do not offend in this manner, and if they do, let them warn the offenders and prevent them from writing. We solemnly charge in like manner the superiors of religious orders that they fulfill the same duty, and should they fail in it, let the bishops make due provision with authority from the supreme pontiff. Let there be, as far as this is possible, a special censor for newspapers and periodicals written by Catholics. It shall be his office to read in due time each number after it has been published, and if he find anything dangerous in it, let him order that it be corrected as soon as possible. The bishop shall have the same right even when the censor has seen nothing objectionable in a publication. Section heading, Congresses. We have already mentioned congresses and public gatherings as among the means used by the modernists to propagate and defend their opinions. In the future, bishops shall not permit congresses of priests except on very rare occasions. When they do permit them, it shall only be on condition that matters appertaining to the bishops or the apostolic see be not treated in them, 
and that no resolutions or petitions be allowed that would imply a usurpation of sacred authority, and that absolutely nothing be said in them which savours of modernism, Presbyterianism, or laicism. At congresses of this kind, which can only be held after permission in writing has been obtained in due time and for each case, it shall not be lawful for priests of other dioceses to be present without the written permission of their ordinary. Further, no priest must lose sight of the solemn recommendation of Leo XIII, quote, Let priests hold as sacred the authority of their pastors. Let them take it for certain that the sacerdotal ministry, if not exercised under the guidance of the bishops, can never be either holy, nor very fruitful, nor worthy of respect. Unquote. Section heading, Diocesan Vigilance Committees. But of what avail, venerable brethren, would be all our commands and prescriptions if they be not dutifully and firmly carried out? In order that this may be done, it has seemed expedient to us to extend to all dioceses the regulations which the bishops of Umbria, with great wisdom, laid down for theirs many years ago. In order, they say, to extirpate the errors already propagated and to prevent their further diffusion, and to remove those teachers of impiety through whom the pernicious effects of such diffusion are being perpetuated, this sacred assembly, following the example of St. Charles Borromeo, has decided to establish in each of the dioceses a council consisting of approved members of both branches of the clergy, which shall be charged with the task of noting the existence of errors and the devices by which new ones are introduced and propagated and to inform the bishop of the whole, so that he may take counsel with them as to the best means for suppressing the evil at the outset and preventing its spreading for the ruin of souls, or worse still, gaining strength and growth. That was from the Acts of the Congress of the Bishops of Umbria, November 1849. We decree, therefore, that in every diocese a council of this kind, which we are pleased to name the Council of Vigilance, be instituted without delay. The priests called to form part in it shall be chosen somewhat after the manner above prescribed for the censors, and they shall meet every two months on an appointed day in the presence of the bishop. They shall be bound to secrecy as to their deliberations and decisions, and in their functions shall be included the following. They shall watch most carefully for every trace and sign of modernism both in publications and in teaching, and to preserve it from the clergy and the young, they shall take all prudent, prompt, and efficacious measures. Let them combat novelties of words, remembering the admonitions of Leo XIII, quote, It is impossible to approve in Catholic publications a style inspired by unsound novelty, which seems to deride the piety of the faithful and dwells on the introduction of a new order of Christian life on new directions of the Church, on new aspirations of the modern soul, on a new social vocation of the clergy, on a new Christian civilization, and many other things of the same kind. Unquote. Language of the kind here indicated is not to be tolerated either in books or in lectures. The councils must not neglect the books treating of the pious traditions of different places or of sacred relics. Let them not permit such questions to be discussed in journals or periodicals destined to foster piety, 
neither with expressions savoring of mockery or contempt, nor by dogmatic pronouncements, especially when, as is often the case, what is stated as a certainty either does not pass the limits of probability or is based on prejudiced opinion. Concerning sacred relics, let this be the rule. If bishops, who alone are judges in such matters, know for certain that a relic is not genuine, let them remove it at once from the veneration of the faithful. If the authentications of a relic happen to have been lost through civil disturbances or in any other way, let it not be exposed for public veneration until the bishop has verified it. The argument of prescription or well-founded presumption is to have weight only when devotion to a relic is commendable by reason of its antiquity, according to the sense of the decree issued in 1896 by the Congregation of Indulgences and Sacred Relics, quote, Ancient relics are to retain the veneration they have always enjoyed, except when in individual instances there are clear arguments that they are false or suppositious, unquote. In passing judgment on pious traditions, let it always be borne in mind that in this matter the Church uses the greatest prudence and that she does not allow traditions of this kind to be narrated in books except with the utmost caution and with the insertion of the declaration imposed by Urban VIII. And even then, she does not guarantee the truth of the fact narrated. She simply does not forbid belief in things for which human evidence is not wanting. On this matter, the Sacred Congregation of Rites, 30 years ago, decreed as follows, quote, These apparitions or revelations have neither been approved nor condemned by the Holy See, which has simply allowed them to be believed on purely human faith, on the tradition which they relate, corroborated by testimony and documents worthy of credence. Unquote. Anyone who follows this rule has no cause to fear. For the devotion based on any apparition, in as far as it regards the fact itself, that is to say, in so far as the devotion to it is relative, always implies the condition of the fact being true. While in as far as it is absolute, it is always based on the truth, seeing that its object is the persons of the saints who are honored. The same is true of relics. Finally, we entrust to the councils of vigilance the duty of overlooking assiduously and diligently social institutions, as well as writings on social questions, so that they may harbor no trace of modernism, but obey the prescriptions of the Roman pontiffs. Section heading, Triennial Returns. Lest what we have laid down thus far should pass into oblivion, we will and ordain that the bishops of all dioceses, a year after the publication of these letters, and every three years thenceforward, furnish the Holy See with a diligent and sworn report on the things which have been decreed in this our letter, and on the doctrines that find currency among the clergy, and especially in the seminaries and other Catholic institutions, those not accepted which are not subject to the ordinary, and we impose the like obligation on the generals of religious orders with regard to those who are under them. Section heading, Conclusion This, Venerable Brethren, is what we have thought it our duty to write to you for the salvation of all who believe. The adversaries of the Church 
will doubtless abuse what we have said to refurbish the old calumny by which we are traduced as the enemy of science and of the progress of humanity. As a fresh answer to such accusations, which the history of the Christian religion refutes by never-failing evidence, it is our intention to establish by every means in our power a special institute in which, through the cooperation of those Catholics who are most eminent for their learning, the advance of science and every other department of knowledge may be promoted under the guidance and teaching of Catholic truth. God grant that we may happily realize our design with the assistance of all those who bear sincere love for the Church of Christ. But of this we propose to speak on another occasion. Meanwhile, Venerable Brethren, fully confident in your zeal and energy, we beseech for you with our whole heart the abundance of heavenly light, so that in the midst of this great danger to souls from the insidious invasions of error upon every hand, you may see clearly what ought to be done, and labor to do it with all your strength and courage. May Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, be with you in his power, and may the Immaculate Virgin, the destroyer of all heresies, be with you by her prayers and aid. And we, as a pleasure of our affection and of the divine solace in adversity, most lovingly grant to you, your clergy and people, the apostolic benediction given at St. Peter's, Rome, on the 8th day of September, 1907, the fifth year of our pontificate, Pius X, Pope.